Welcome to the EuroQ podcast, Pastime, Talking and Teaching History. My name is Sander Solperger and I will be your podcast host for this episode. But I have a special guest with me again. Mikey, you're back. Hey, Andreas, I heard you were missing me. Absolutely. It was, <laughs> it was very difficult doing this podcast without you. So I'm glad to have you back. Uh, today we will be talking about emotions in the classroom. The aim of our podcast is generally to discuss topics and ideas that are relevant for history educators, to inspire each other and learn from some of the great people that are part of our community. This podcast is just one of many ways in which Eurokeo reaches out to educators. We do webinars, blogs, conferences, so visit our website eurokeo.eu and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. If you like our work, I also encourage all our listeners to also join Eurokeo as an individual member. For a very small fee, you'll get plenty of benefits, including free access to all our professional development courses online. We've just finished uh, an entire month of online annual conference back in uh, November. But That's there will right. be more. That was coming so up. much fun. I was there as well. Excellent. So, yeah, from my chair, of course, but it very was good. great. Good job. Coming back to the topic of the episode, of course, we are talking about emotions in the classroom and we've sort of discovered that, well, you can't avoid emotions even in the classroom, but it's a difficult subject. So how do we deal with it? It's like something that we are always taught to sort of as, as teachers, as educators to sort of avoid. But then throughout this podcast we, or this episode, we actually realized that it's unavoidable. So better to think about ways in which we can sort of Embrace it and use it for the better. For today's uh, episode, we have two guests, Dr. Amaya Lamikis and Professor Michalinos Sembilas. We start off speaking with Amaya. Amaya Lamikis has a degree in history from the University of Deusto. She then worked as a researcher at the European University Institute in Florence, where she defended her PhD about the Franco regime from the perspective of the Basque country in 2005. She has worked as a lecturer at the Department of Theory and History of Education at the University of the Basque country, and is currently working as a history teacher in upper secondary education. Amaya has also collaborated in numerous international research projects, contributing articles dealing with the contested narratives in history, amongst others, the Learning to Disagree project uh, of Eurocleo. And so my first or first question would be, why do you think it is important that students uh, are sort of learning to disagree? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very important because um, usually students, uh, when they participate in, in a discussion or when when they are learning about the history of, uh, of, difficult, of uh, sensitive topics or topics where there has been a lot of conflict, they tend to take one position or the other position and sometimes um, they are too polarized or radicalized. No, they see one one perspective and maybe not the other one. And uh, one of the things we try in history teaching is to try uh, to show the complexity of, uh, of the past. So I think, especially 
talking from the perspective of a historian and a history teacher um, who teaches about the 20th history in Spain, uh, which has been full of conflict. And, uh, and uh, I mean, we have the civil war followed by a dictatorship, a long dictatorship. Then we have terrorism in the last decades of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st. Mm, there has been a lot of division in society. There's, there has been a lot of suffering in society. And uh, many of these things are still there nowadays and they come up sometimes. Um, I don't know, I can think of, uh, I don't know, Franco's exhumation and removal or what to do with the Valle de los Caídos and many other monuments, um, so to speak, of, of the past. Okay, and how do we remember all those things? So, so there has been conflict in our history and sometimes there is still conflict nowadays. We lack a culture of debate. We lack, um, we lack, an, I don't know, a way of um, approaching the past, uh, trying to understand the different positions, um, the different situations, and uh, and sometimes the suffering of many of these people. So um, uh, somehow I don't. I'm not saying that uh, that all points of view in a debate or or that all opinions are can be justified or can be acceptable i don't mean that but what i mean is that uh, we really need to get our students used to looking at different points of view to approaching um, the history in the past and their own present trying to reach compromise trying to live together okay i think that is important they should become aware that uh, we do not always necessarily need to agree on everything, uh, that there can be disagreement, but there should be respect um, and some understanding, eh? mm, somehow acceptance of, of difference and different points of view, because that's probably one of the only ways we can have to advance in the future, to build a society altogether. And I think that was quite clear in the Spanish case, for example, after a dictatorship and the process of transition to democracy. The same that happens in a classroom when you have to carry out a project in a team and uh, you know that students need to find some kind of compromise between their different uh, ways uh, and approaches. Uh, it's the same for the whole society. And I think that's something that the students need to learn. And, and when, you're, when you're teaching these more controversial topics, I mean, in, so in the Spanish context, you, yeah, you mentioned the civil war, the memory of uh, the period of, of Franco, the dictatorship. I mean, when teaching these very sensitive issues or controversial issues, I, I'm assuming that it can also get somewhat emotional in the classroom at times. Do you have strategies for dealing with that in a, in a classroom situation? Well, um, I think sometimes we need more training. <laughs> uh, we, we do have some strategies, but uh, maybe we would need also some guidance in some moments. And, uh, and we would need more training because very often uh, teachers don't feel very comfortable when dealing with, uh, with too much emotions, uh, too many emotions in the classroom. They are obviously there, but sometimes we feel more comfortable trying to keep um, 
our discussions or to keep our explanations uh, limited to facts. Try to establish what happened based on, on the events and uh, leave emotions aside. It's more comfortable for us and uh, we also have this idea that it would be probably more even objective. But uh, I guess that's not always possible um, because we see that emotions are there. Um, and uh, we have seen that uh, in, in, in many of the topics we have been uh, dealing with uh, regarding uh, the Spanish past. It happens with the Spanish Civil War. Um, that's a topic that uh, in the past, obviously, we were teaching about it. I've been teaching uh, history, Spanish history in the last almost 20 years. And uh, obviously, we have always been teaching with the Spanish Civil War. But maybe now we teach uh, about it in a bit different way. Probably 20 or more or longer, we would be teaching about the Spanish Civil War, but it was more like, um, okay, the different sides, the causes of the war, the events of the war, not so much, but consequences of the war, for example, or how people were living and experiencing the war. And I think the change now in the last maybe 20 years mm -hmm. is that we have been including new topics that had been previously been silenced somehow. And uh, yeah, we needed time for that probably. Not, uh, not us as teachers in schools, but the whole society. There was a movement in civil society uh, that, uh, and many associations that started to recover what they say the historical memory. So they were trying to, to give voice to those who had been silenced during the war. And, uh, and this implied um, talking to people who had experienced this, this war and uh, listening to them. And um, yeah, some years later, we started in our school with oral history projects where students had to interview their grandparents. And that's one of the moments when, uh, when feelings and emotions come to the classroom, because uh, if you send the students uh, home to talk to their grandparents, some of those grandparents in the beginning didn't want to speak because it was too painful for them. Um, others spoke, uh, each one from his or her point of view and own experiences. So when the students were coming back to the classroom, they had very, very different experiences. Um, there we had those feelings and sometimes it was difficult to deal with them because some were proud of the participation of their grandparents, others were ashamed of their participation. Um, they saw that uh, it was very different what some were telling and what the others were telling. So maybe there was not a conflict directly between the students, but, uh, but they were aware of, of the conflicts of the past and the difficulties of this past. So um, I think that's one of the moments when, when we were dealing with this. Um, we, it was not so difficult, I think. In some cases, we had some students that didn't want to talk about what their grandparents spoke, but otherwise um, it was not that difficult because they were all happy that they could listen to them. So, um, I think in that case, that was an enriching experience. But then we have all the more difficult topics. Um, I don't know, like, um, and other experiences like uh, terrorism also, no? Uh, that's uh, that's uh, somehow a taboo. I mean, we don't speak much about it in the classroom. I think very often we try to avoid it in the classroom, although um, it's now again, one of those topics that it's entering the classrooms. But again, this is something that it has in common with the Spanish Civil War. We needed probably time and distance 
and uh, somehow it was a topic that uh, first had to be um, dealt with in society and again it is civil society that starts moving and starts trying to to review the past and to try to to follow this path of uh, of um, recognizing what happened and trying to build some sort of reconciliation and after this um, some years ago it came to the classrooms and now what we do we use materials um, that have been developed by different organizations and uh, we bring um, victims of uh, of violence of those periods to the classroom and uh, and they speak to our students and again we have feelings there and emotions and I can tell you I mean students are usually very moved by this uh, kind of activity and again uh, I think it's very very useful but also difficult because uh, as teachers we're not uh, we're not used to dealing with these kind of things but I think we are becoming aware that they are important and we recognizing that that they are there and that we have to to learn from them um, I have an ambivalent uh, view about uh, emotions in the classroom. On the one hand, uh, we feel uncomfortable because we don't know how to deal with them. And we think uh, uh, if there are too many emotions in the classroom, uh, students uh, may end up becoming too polarized. And, uh, and this is uh, not a good way of having a discussion or, or of understanding each other or connecting with each other. But at the same time, um, I also think that emotions um, can have the opposite effect. They can help us connect because they bring us to um, somehow common ground. Eh? And uh, it's maybe connected to empathy as well, to um, trying to identify or if not identify at least understand a bit better the feelings of other people, of people who have maybe suffered. And, uh, and that can be a common ground from which we can start um, communicating and uh, asking and uh, listening to each other. So I think that's a very important uh, point. But uh, as I said, maybe teachers, we need to, to, um, to learn how to deal with that, how to canalize these feelings in the classroom and how to um, use them in a productive way. Uh, one one other thing that you mentioned that I, I thought was very interesting was how, I mean, you, you have had some experience talking about very difficult topics where there has been some emotions in the classroom. I, I guess one of the ways you, you managed to do that is, is also, you were saying that, you know, in the end, it wasn't so difficult to talk about the, the experience of, of uh, the grandparents in the Spanish Civil War and so forth. But I suppose it's also part of of your effort at creating a, a safe space in in a classroom and, and letting people um, express themselves. What, what's your what's your thought on on that actually? Yeah, you mean um, creating a safe environment or creating an environment where they feel they can speak about things. Yeah, I think we, we try to do that, obviously. I mean, if uh, as a teacher, if you see that there are too many tensions or that students are unable or don't uh, trust uh, others or don't dare to speak in front of others, we're not going to include these kind of topics in the classroom. Uh, obviously, when you know your classroom and you know the people sitting there, you know what kind of things you can try 
with them and what kind of things you can't. And usually, yeah, we, we do that when we when we know that uh, that there's a, an, an environment where they feel confident to speak about these kind of topics. Or sometimes what you can also do is, um, or we try sometimes, is to start speaking in smaller groups where they feel more confident. Mm -hmm. And then if we see we can do that, we just go and discuss it in the bigger group. Or sometimes you just ask them to write things down and it becomes a kind of, um, I think you call it silent debate, where, um, yeah, each one can express his or her opinions, but not directly, openly in front of the whole classroom. And then we can build on, on those um, ideas that have come up in those small pieces of, of written uh, conversations. Other activities that uh, that we try to use when we have this kind of um, of difficulties is sometimes um, find roles uh, which are somehow correspond to the different positions in a debate or in a discussion or in the topic we are dealing with, but which are not. Um, directly connected to them so through the roles maybe they can they can try to discuss they can try to to understand the different positions and uh, and they are not involved directly themselves so we, we focus on roles instead of uh, on their own personal opinions and we try to start from those roles to try to find the different positions the different perspectives and um, yeah to try to discuss um, what I find very interesting is what you say, we have a, a lack uh, today, nowadays we have a, a, a we lack a culture of debate is what you how you started your um, during the first question, I think it's very interesting, could you maybe do you have an idea why that would be the case. In our specific context, um, on the one hand. I think we lack models. So there are no good models around us. There are no models in society or in the mass media and TV, or even sometimes in the political debate. So our children and our students are used to see something called debate, which is not really a debate, where opinions get polarized very quickly. There is, uh, everything is like black and white and there is not much gray. And uh, in that sense, on the one hand, I think it's a lack of models. I don't mean directly in school, but in the whole society. On the other hand, probably that even in school, we are not used to, to debate so much. Um, we come from a tradition where students don't have such an active role, maybe. And uh, we don't ask of them to participate in debate so much. And this is something that is changing. And uh, in the last years, I think we are aware of the importance of their active participation. And we try um, to promote more and more discussion in the classroom. But we come from a school where yeah, the teacher was giving explanations and the students were receiving them and learning them. So that's also a bit uh, lack of uh, training. And then maybe um, this, the past we have had uh, with, as I was saying before, with so much conflict in society uh, that uh, somehow leads people to identify disagreement with conflict. And this brings us back to this idea, why is it important to learn to disagree? Mm -hmm. um, that people get used to, to discussing 
um, without disputes. Um, trying to connect to the others, uh, trying to understand the others, and uh, learning that uh, if you respect each other, and uh, if you take each other's point of view into account, if you accept difference somehow, um, you can build something together. You can talk about things without uh, it leading to conflict. But as I said, for that, we would need good models in society as a whole. Good, good models, but also you, I mean, you, you, you touch on this as essentially a teaching strategy as well with, with um, presenting different viewpoints. And, and I guess that ultimately is a form of, mm -hmm. yeah, of, of uh, empathizing with other people's opinions and, and to try to understand where certain thoughts or opinions are coming from, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I think this idea of presenting them um, multiple points of view, a variety of, uh, of opinions and sources, many different sources, mm -hmm. so that uh, yeah, as a history teacher, uh, sources are important, they are basic, and I think we should base much more on them and um, try to show our students as many sources as possible so that they can compare, they can contrast, um, and they can work on them in a critical way. I think uh, this would be very helpful as a, as a strategy, not just for history lessons, but in general. Uh, every time you get out and read newspapers or, or have information from the media, uh, if you get used to listening to different points of view, different sources, and learn to be critical towards them, this is quite helpful, not just in the history lessons, as I said, in general. Michalinos Sembilas is Professor of Educational Theory and Curriculum Studies at the Open University of Cyprus. He is also a visiting professor and research fellow at the Institute for Reconciliation and Social Justice at the University of the Free State in South Africa and at the Center for Critical Studies in Higher Education Transformation at Nelson Mandela Metropolitan University, also in South Africa. Professor Simbilas has written extensively on emotion and effect in relation to social justice pedagogies, intercultural and peace education, human rights education, and citizenship education. Professor Simbilas, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Andreas. I'm delighted. So uh, as a first question to you, um, as I also touched in your biography, you have written extensively about the role of emotions in the classroom in the period uh, 2013 to about a year ago or so, your articles and books were mostly about the transformative potential of emotions. Uh, so in other words, how emotions in the classroom can be used to rethink or unlearn certain ideas about the world. More recently, your articles are more about how emotions are used to reinforce or support the status quo, uh, in a sense also allowing right-wing populism in some instances to, to, to grow and to foster within um, education. My question is why and how did your interests uh, in this topic begin? Thank you for your question, Andreas. Um, I always uh, believe that learning does not uh, happen through reason, argument, at least not only through 
reason argument or critical self-reflection and that emotion plays a huge role in teaching and learning. And when I began my research, I started noticing uh, the visible and invisible ways that um, emotions play a huge role in, in how we learn and, and of course how we teach. And um, to give you an example, um, you, can, you can see this very visibly in the emotional uh, resistance or the discomfort that uh, teachers and students in, in many places uh, feel when they deal with historical trauma, with conflict and war, um, the apartheid in, in South Africa and so on. So, um, and that's, that's where the notion of um, pedagogies of, of discomfort came in my work with uh, uh, Megan Bowler. She was the first to introduce the term and then we did some work together and then I picked it up. Um, and, and basically the idea of pedagogy of discomfort is that teaching practice begins by inviting educators and students to engage in a critical exploration regarding their values, uh, their cherished beliefs, their emotions, and to examine the constructed self images in relation to how uh, we have learned to perceive others. And we, especially through the educational system, we are educated to perceive others the enemy or you know whatever however we define others who we perceive as different from us we 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 have specific we construct specific images about the self and the other and we uh, attach specific emotions as well so there are specific affective investments in how we view ourselves and, and others. And a simple example is that we always want to feel good about ourselves. That's the simplest example uh, I, I can give you. And we usually perceive uh, others with whom we may disagree or with whom we are, you know, uh, quote unquote enemies. We, we perceive them in very negative and prejudiced ways. And so emotions play a big part because when you start thinking about how to deal with these prejudices and these uh, in, in the conflicts that we have, you realize how difficult it is to change those cherished beliefs about ourselves and about others. And that's where you realize how strong and powerful the role of emotions in teaching and learning is. It's not easy to change those cherished beliefs and emotions. I, I, I find it's, this very interesting, and I, I would also like to uh, tie it a bit with um, coming back to your biography. I mean, you, you mentioned how you had a view of the others, and we always uh, there is a reinforcement about how, yeah, we always have this, this uh, we want to feel good about ourselves, and we see the other as as potential enemy almost. You you have an interesting background. You're 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 from from Cyprus. Uh, you're mm -hmm. You also lecture and, and uh, you're a professor in Cyprus, but you've also been working in South Africa. Um, both are countries with 
recent memories of, of conflicts, difficult histories, quite strong divisions in society, if you like. How have your experiences working in these two countries and these two settings shaped your research and your interest in, in this uh, topic? And, and yeah, where do you see some commonalities and maybe some differences as well with, with these concrete examples? Uh, clearly growing up in Cyprus and the ethnic division in Cyprus um, had an impact on me, emotional, intellectual, uh, cultural, and, and um, you perhaps you realize how huge that impact is uh, when you uh, have the opportunity to get out of this context and, and live uh, elsewhere or do work as well. So when I left Cyprus for further studies in the US uh, in the early 90s, um, I had very different views than the views that I have now. And uh, perhaps um, this distance allowed me to reflect on some things in, in ways that I, I wasn't able when you are very much immersed in the everyday conflicting emotional regime that you live. So um, kids are educated, are educated in Cyprus to perceive, I mean, Greek Cypriots, to perceive Turkish Cypriots and vice versa as enemies because of the previous conflict. Um, a similar history you can find in many other places around the world, in Israel and Palestine, in Northern Ireland. Each context is very different, but there are some similarities in terms of this we and they division, us and them. Um, these uh, uh, binaries um, are very much created not only in the society, but they're reproduced many times through the educational system. So um, to go back to your question, there are obviously many similarities, for example, between the context of, of Cyprus and South Africa in terms of there has been historical trauma, there has been uh, remnants of coloniality in both places. Cyprus was a British colony, uh, same um, South Africa was a colony. Um, uh, very, in very different ways, it has been, of course, a colony. And um, there is a powerful sense of, of injustice among various sectors of the society in both countries. Um, but there are also, of course, many, many differences that make this context uh, very different and the complexities of this context very different. In uh, one major difference between these two settings is that um, there was um, a political sort of settlement in South Africa with the process of reconciliation uh, because of the political courage and will of Nelson Mandela and other leaders. Um, so that made a difference uh, in terms of South Africa not uh, experiencing a, a bloodshed like in, in, other, uh, in other places around the world. Unfortunately, this sort of reconciliation process is not present yet in Cyprus. So my point is that uh, political leadership, 
and the good example by political leaders is hugely important and influences not only the society, but also the direction of the educational system. When there is uh, a good example from the political leadership, it makes a difference because it, it moves the society into a different regime of uh, emotional regime. Uh, so it's not stuck in division and hatred and prejudice. Now, saying that, I'm not claiming by any means that South Africa has overcome uh, so that there won't be any misunderstandings. There are still huge divisions, huge social injustices, structural injustices that have not been able to you know, uh, be tackled in, in, the, in, in 20, 25 years after 1994. So there's still a lot of work, but at least there was a process of reconciliation with its weaknesses uh, compared to uh, the setting in which I am living, where, where we still struggle to find um, a message for peace and reconciliation that is embraced by political leadership and the society and, of course, the educational system. So, so what you're saying is that um, in order to move from prejudice and maybe uh, hatred, we have to get into some what you call an emotional regime. How, as a teacher, is it possible for me to use that for learning? So how, as, how can this be conducive for, for learning to take place in the classroom? Okay, before answering that, I should clarify that it's important to theorize and understand emotion not as an individualized, psychologized feeling. I mean, that's not the way I understand emotion. I don't limit it to the individual. Obviously, each individual has feelings, right? But um, I cannot make sense of these feelings unless I situated them in a social and political context. So what I'm talking about is that um, there has to be a, a social and political process. And that's why I emphasize uh, the importance of political leadership. It's not something that education alone, or the educational system alone, or teachers alone could undertake. This is a complex social and political process. Everyone, all the sectors of the society should be involved. When you're talking about social transformation, it's not about changing your emotions. It's about changing the social structures of injustice and, 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 and coloniality and the prejudices and racism. It's not about you know, empathizing uh, with the pain and the suffering of the other. This would be a very sentimentalized, superficial, psychologized process that would not get you too far. So to be able to um, enact a pedagogy of discomfort the way I understand it, it has to be situated in this sort of understanding of emotion and affect in this social and political process. So um, creating uh, an atmosphere, an emotional atmosphere, where you actually engage in this critical emotional reflexivity, not by yourself, 
but with, with everyone in the classroom. So empathy for me is not enough. Cultivating empathy in the classroom, my fear is that it, it ends up uh, being a sentimentalized process of feeling good about ourselves that we can, you know, be in the shoes of another person and then we move on with our day and everything is fine. The question is, what can you do to change, to take empathetic action, to change the suffering of another person, to, to relieve the suffering of another person and the, and the hardship of, of, of another group? This, I mean, for me, this is the measure. This, this is the, the deliverable, if you, if you wish. And obviously, this is not the responsibility of teachers alone. I think it would be a huge injustice to place this responsibility to teachers alone. This is a societal and, and, and a, a political responsibility, an ethical responsibility, if you will. But if we are talking about teachers, the question is, how much burden can teachers take in this? And I think they can definitely play a, an important role, a critical role in initiating some of these processes or inspiring some of these processes to take place in their school and in their classrooms. So it's very interesting with, um, because most often uh, teachers, like myself as well, when we go through our teacher teachers program, we are sort of taught to de-escalate the situation and to make sure that emotions are so far as far as possible not um, not included or, or at least not embraced the way that you are sort of like uh, explaining it to us right now. Um, if we just talk about their responsibility of maybe universities or universities of applied sciences who are training teachers, what could they do differently to accommodate a pedagogy of discomfort? Well, beginning from realizing the, uh, the important role of emotion and affect in, in, in how uh, we invest in certain beliefs and how those uh, affective investments prevent us from constructing particular relations with other people. Uh, but I don't think it's realistic to say that emotions are, should not be allowed or are not allowed in the classroom. They are present. You just, you may not realize it, but they are always present. The question is, can you take advantage in a good sense, productively and strategically, the use of emotions and affect to um, uh, have a, a, a productive effect, to have a conversation or to initiate some action that really um, um, inspires some sort of individual and social transformation. And this is often a challenge that, that I do see, especially in conflict-affected societies like my own or in, in Israel or in, 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 in uh, Northern Ireland, where there is... Um, uh, a hesitancy uh, by teachers to touch on some issues because they think the parents may react, because they think they will hurt students. And I'm claiming 
you know, those emotions are always are already present there. You just don't see them. So what do you do about them? You may claim I cannot do anything about it. And, and then I will respond, um, no, there are ways. You know, it's important to create a safe atmosphere in the classroom. It's, it's important to include students' uh, emotional biographies that you start from a step-by-step -step approach with non-contentious issues and gradually moving into more controversial ones. So there is research that tells us that there is a way of doing that productively, sensitively, strategically. So um, I, I think it's important to take into consideration this, this sort of research. So we've talked a bit about yeah, the, the, the difficult emotions from, from societies that have experienced some conflict. You mentioned Northern Ireland, Israel-Palestine, indeed Cyprus as well. We've seen, um, yeah, over quite a long time now, uh, rising right-wing populism in, in large parts of, of Europe and beyond, in the US as well. Um, yeah, more feelings of anger, of resentment, uh, yeah. Often at the expense of, yeah, uh, uh, imaginary or or, or otherwise, uh, you know, uh, enemies or, or what we should call them. Um, how can we how can we talk about that in 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 the classroom, Michalinos? What education can do, obviously, it cannot respond to these huge complexities because these are societal and political problems. But what education can do and play its productive role is to create the space in the classroom for students to think uh, critically and productively about people's effects. Why some people feel resentment and anger and um, what can be done about it. So it's important to understand the affective investments that come with these movements, populism, fascism, neo-fascism, and so on. Why people are attracted to fascist ideas, right-wing populism, and so on. They are not idiots. They choose. There is a desire. There is a lot of research that tells us that people desire these ideas because they provide them comfort and security. So instead of... of accusing and judging negatively the people who buy into the ideas. It's important to understand the effects that come with these movements. And this is where education can make a huge contribution by having these difficult conversations. Education is not gonna change people's views about populism and fascism. I don't think it's a burden that educators can have, but they can certainly make a difference in creating an emotional, uh, safe environment in the classroom where these issues are talked about without uh, pointing fingers, without blaming individuals. The issue is not individualized, is not a psychologized problem of, of a problematic individual. Uh, it's, it's a societal thing. We buy into as a society. So what the, 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 the response that we'll give 
is much more complex than blaming the individual. And it's important for teachers to exercise what um, I have called in the past strategic empathy, empathizing sometimes with some of these ideas for strategic reasons, for the purpose of having the conversation open. Because if you blame the individual, then the conversation ends and there is no chance of making any difference. That's the end of it. I think this will, will be our last question. Um, but uh, this, I think it's an important point to make because even though the burden is not upon our shoulders, I do think, and I can talk for myself, is that sometimes you do feel like you're walking on eggshells in a classroom. And in one of your latest articles, you make a very clear distinction between criticizing a political actor and critically examining the consequences of their politics in a democracy. So let me just quote uh, carefully here what, what you wrote down, mm -hmm. that there is an action for educators to not simply joke about Trump, but to move a step further and to seek a critical space for examining the consequences of such political rhetoric. And I think that's a very, that is very important to make this distinction between criticizing a, polit a politician or critically examining the consequences of their rhetoric. Could you just maybe elaborate a little bit further on mm -hmm. what exactly do you mean by this? I mean that it's not enough to engage in negative critique because this is the easy way out. Critiquing the other for saying unacceptable, racist, fascist things doesn't move things forward. What I think what we need is what some scholars call affirmative critique. That is a critique that is um, providing alternative frames and agendas that endorse and disseminate alternative concepts and affective practices such as equality, love, and solidarity. The question is, you know, can you provide an affirmative critique that offers critical resources to democratic education for developing a process of democracy that transcends the negativity of mere critique of either right-wing populism or uh, inadequate forms of democracy. Because we admit that democracy is not always perfect. It has weaknesses and inadequacies. So I think what educators can do to um, address the problem of right-wing populism and, and fashion is to provide this critical space to realize the consequences on the one hand of the political rhetoric that is used by fascist leaders. But at the same time, we need a positive, a constructive critique, something that offers an alternative uh, way of being and feeling negative is not enough we need we need some positivity we need some um uh you know affirmative critique here 